This episode is sponsored by Echo. Hear clearly, care confidently. Learn more at echohealth.com. That's E-K-O health.com. And use code JSP for $50 off any stethoscope. Just Some Podcast Media. The thoughts and opinions on Just Some Podcast are of the hosts and guests and do not represent the views of organizations that employ them or they volunteer for. They are also not responsible for spontaneous black holes or nuclear wars that may occur. You have been warned. Welcome, 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 everybody, to another fun-filled and exciting episode of Just Some Podcast. This is Tom. Hey, this is Ben. Tom, normally this is where I would say, Tom, how are you, man? But I'm going to start off with a rant, okay? You don't know about this. You know nothing about what I'm getting ready to say. Correct. But here's my problem. We're in the middle of flu season. I mean, we are we're, we're as deep in flu patients. Okay. And, of course, you have you know flu, RSV, COVID, everything, you know, the triple pandemic of everything going on. I get it. That's cool. I understand. We had these new tests in the office. The test flu, A, flu B, and COVID. That's impressive. It's, it's nice. My problem is it's just the normal COVID swab where it's just in the edge of the nostril, spin it around a few times, both nostrils, and then into it. So you're telling me I did not have to get a brain biopsy years ago when I got flu tested multiple times. Because for those who don't know... The flu test, when it was by itself, this was the only time I've ever had a lab technician tell me, you might want to sit on your hands. And I said, well, why is that? She says, because you're going to reach up and try to grab this out of your face. (laughs) And sure enough, I wanted to reach up and grab it out of my face because they take it and they jam it pretty much up into your brain. Or at least that's the way it feels. Yeah, it feels like it's finger deep. Because that was the only way we could test for the flu. That's the only way we could test for flu. It's the I'm only way. I'm calling bull shit because I've had multiple flu cases come positive on just the nasal swab in the edge of the nose, just to where it starts to become uncomfortable, not where it's all the way up in the nose. And I'm a little pissed off about it, Tom. Well, Ben, you're allowed to be pissed off. My question, though, to you, since this is the first time I'm hearing about it. Yes. My first instinct, though, is... Is this because we have new technology that now makes it available for us to detect with a less intrusive swab? And the chemical assay is much more specific and is able to pick that up now. I discount your reality and substitute my own. I That is the modern world we live in. So, yeah, that's valid. Go ahead. I have seen that multiple times. Yeah, I say multiple times the last couple of years. I've seen people just go, no, that's not true. I'm like, no, that's absolutely true. But yeah, they just counted it too. So sure, you can do that now. And no, honestly, it probably is very much what you're saying. (laughs) Is it probably? Yes. Do we know though, Ben? Do we really know? No. We don't know. No. This is how the one world government gets you. Flu swaps. This is how it starts, Ben. I'm kidding. 
I'm kidding. So, but you've had flu swabs before, yes? Oh, absolutely. I've had and flu swabs, horrendous. and I had yeah, I had the original COVID swabs where it felt like the flu swab, but like a coffee or a, like a regular drinking straw size. Yes, and they did the exact same thing. This is no joke, Ben. And I don't know if I've said this on the air, but you know, here we go. One of the times they tested me for COVID because I was just so lucky I got to get tested like three times in the beginning when she jammed it knuckle deep into the recesses of my brain and then held it there. Apparently I cringed and bared down so hard. I flipped my eyelid inside out. So while this young lady is just elbow deep in my face, just knowing she's trying to get a confession out of me for a crime I did not commit, nor did I know about she's counting out loud and I hear one, two three yes yeah and it's because she looked up and saw my face disfigured and contorted and afterwards was like oh my god i almost threw up and i was like what and so that she told me i was like oh so that makes you feel good knowing that this thing can be shoved so far into cavities inside your body that it can actually make your eyelids flip inside out true story and I do remember the early COVID test where and they would put it there and then leave it to like the count of 10. And it was yeah. horrendous. Too, so. and, and, and look, look, the early flu swabs and probably the ones the majority of the people listening to this are still using sucked. But they were about the width of a human hair or dental floss. So, well, the, the stick part, the bristle part was normal size, but it was a very flimsy. So it could go into your nasal pharyngeal area. And bam, that first COVID swab. I am pretty sure they just used old silverware and like fork bases to get in there because, no, it hurt. It was not a pleasant experience. So so for all of you out there who are still using the flu swab where you get the brain babs, I just want you to know there is a better way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You don't have to. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of flu here as well. I've also known of multiple areas where they've been testing so many people for flu and COVID. We're running out of tests. So that's also another just great. To be fair, though, while it is important, you can, you know, kind of go, okay, I'm going to go ahead and clinically diagnose you and treat you for a viral upper respiratory infection and then kind of save the actual influenza COVID test for maybe people that are immunosuppressed or something like that. Everybody else, you're getting treated for a viral upper respiratory infection. That's how it's going. And if you're in one of those areas where they don't have tests. And at least in our area with influenza A, they look like they have influenza. Like they walk into the office and you're like, you got the flu because they have that look to them. I was going to say there's been several – well, pre-pandemic, there were several years where obviously people were sick. And yeah, we were getting lots of flu cases. But by and large, it was people like, I don't feel good. Okay, well, go home and get some sleep. You know, I mean, that's the answer. But – Yeah, some of these – and I don't – let me pose a side question that we can get into the episode. But do you think the reason people feel harder hit by viral infections now is lingering PTSD from dealing with COVID viral infections? Like I feel like the same patient three years ago wouldn't even come to my office. But now I have 22-year-old guys lining up, you know, to get – tested because they're sure they're sick and i'm not poking at 22 year old guys it can be anybody it could be a 40 year old female i don't care the point is 
very similar people that are now in my office wanting to know what their treatment options are the same people that pre-COVID probably wouldn't even came to the office. I don't know if it's so much because of that or if it's still we're in that mindset, particularly within the school systems and employers that, oh, well, you have a fever, you need to go get tested to find out what you have to determine if you need a note or whatever the case may be. So some of it, I think, is related to that. And that's, I mean, and I see that. I just feel like anytime someone feels bad now, before they'd have been like, ah, I got some sniffles and a fever. Or, you know, I'll take some Tylenol. I'll be fine. Now it's like, hey, I have a fever and my heart rate is 104. I'm pretty sure I'm going to die. I'm like, what? No. <laughs> you know, drink some Gatorade and get some sleep. Take an ibuprofen, for God's sakes. You know, so I, I do, I feel. At, maybe it's just my area. I just feel like people, whether they are sicker or not, they are reporting feeling like they're on death's doorstep. And I've had the same thing for people that tested negative for everything. You know, I mean, I've had some very sick people and they test positive for flu or COVID. But then I also have somebody that's saying they're just as sick, but they're not, you know, so I, I don't it's hard for me to get a read on whether people are feeling sicker, maybe the flu is hitting them harder this year, or if it's just this lingering, oh, well, once I get sick, I have to be worried I'm going to be really sick. Because nobody worried about the flu until COVID. True. I mean, we did an entire show where we said how dangerous influenza was. The general you know, public. The general public was like, ah, it's just a cold. Yeah, well, now it seems to be a much more impressive. Yeah, yeah I agree. Tom, you ready to jump into our story that you may have missed, man? Absolutely. So I don't know if you remember our last story where I kind of pulled on your heartstrings. It was about the little four-year-old that called 911 because his mom was having seizures. Mm-hmm. I found this story. This is a different story, obviously. But point being, I'm going to pull on your heartstrings, but it's going to be a different way. So I'm going to apologize now in advance for what I'm going to talk about. Okay? Okay. So Jamie Erickson is a paramedic in Canada, and she was called to a crash north of Calgary on November 15th. She sat with a seriously injured girl who had to be extricated from the car and taken to the hospital. She was the passenger in the vehicle. The driver was able to get out with some serious injuries, but the passenger was trapped. So Erickson was the first person on scene. This paramedic knew that this girl was in trouble. She sat there with her until she was extricated transported to the hospital by air ambulance where she later succumbed to the injuries from the accident. Anticipation being by this paramedic, that was probably going to happen. After she got home from work, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police knocked on her door and told her that her 17 year old daughter, Montana had died in a car accident. She was so unrecognizable. She did not realize that she had been sitting with her own daughter. Speaking from... So when I read this story initially, I got the, I, it brought tears to my eyes. Because, particularly rural health and rural ERs, that's always a fear. Every time, you know, that you hear an ambulance go out, and I, I don't say every time, but I mean, it's always in the back of your mind that, what if it's my mom? It's a very real possibility. Yeah. yeah. And because you're the, in rural health, you're, you may be the only nurse in that ER, or you may be one of a handful of nurses. 
So, I mean, this paramedic truly went through, I think, what every ER nurse's worst fear is. And I agree. It, just, it bugged me. I, oh, yeah. So I wanted to share her story. They did do a, a GoFundMe to help pay for expenses. And last I looked, it had raised a massive amount of money. Obviously not going to bring her daughter back or help her mental health at all. But hopefully some good can at least come from that. First of all, I had read that story. That's why I, the crowd listening, can't see. I put my head down because I was like, oh, God. I, as soon as I heard it, I was like, wait a second, paramedic and candidate, I just read this story. And I was like, oh, boy. Second of all, I have, you know, in a rural ER, had to work on people I knew. So, yeah, I've, it wasn't the nightmare. It wasn't like my mom. I'm just saying, like, people very close to me, I have been the last person they saw alive. And I'm like, oh, boy. Yeah, and that's something that weighs on your brain. In this particular case, though, while it crushed me, there was some part of me that thought for even a second that if my child was in a car wreck and the last person they could talk to was me, I would take that chance. You know, I and so not that anything can ever assuage this woman's grief. Agree. But perhaps if there is one speck of light or silver lining, it is that hopefully she will take with her that the last person her daughter got to spend time with was in fact her. And while it is absolutely a tragedy that she lost her daughter and had to help work on her, I got to be honest, and maybe it's just me, but there's part of me that goes, because I know people that could never work on their family member, but I got to be honest. If you said, Tom, your kids only got one chance to live, I want to be the guy, you know, I want to be the one, you know, this is going to be a poor analogy, but you know, like Michael Jordan said at the end of the game, he wanted the ball because he didn't want anybody else to mess up his day. You know I mean? And that's not exactly how he put it, but that's how he put it basically. And I would trust you. And there's lots of fine nurses that I would absolutely trust. But if you're telling me that this is the last thing that kid's going to feel, it's going to be my hand. You know, the last breath that's going to be breathed into their mouth, mouth to mouth, it's going to be mine. And given that choice, and I'm not saying I want it. I'm just saying. Right. Yeah. No, of course not. I hope as a person that has worked on people close to them and seen them pass away, maybe in some way that can bring her, even if it's minuscule, the slightest amount of comfort. I hope she feels it. And, ooh, I know I make fun of Canada a lot, but, yeah, that's a – a bad deal. That's I mean, a bad really deal, is, yeah. Just – I think that in the back of your mind when you go into to healthcare, that's always in the back of your mind is that it's going to be a loved one. Like you, I've taken care of people very close to me. I've never had the – I never had to code a loved one of my own, thank God. But, you know, when my – Wife's grandpa was brought to the hospital coding. You know, she come busting through the ER because she's a nurse. And she said, I'm going to that room. And I said, no, you're not. And she kind of looked at me and I said, you know how graphic codes are. And I don't want that to be your last memory. So I'm stopping you from going in there. And I did. 
having said that and having word codes, that's also the flip side of this story that the part of me that doesn't want to be there is because of that. So as much as, again, I understand how backwards that sounds because people have heard me talk for the last two minutes about how much I would want to be the one. The other half of me goes, no, you know, and as a police officer, I've protected some scenes from family members where I'm like, look, you're not, you don't want to go in that house. Like there's nothing for you in that house. If there's an object or a valuable possession you want, we'll get it for you. But you know, you, you shouldn't go in there. I think sometimes people feel like that's harsh, but they don't realize that's actually protective. I'm willing to be a, you can be mad at me. I'm still going to protect you from that, you know, that, that image. You but yourself sometimes, yeah. I hope this lady gets some mental health help and God, I, I don't even know what happens next, but whatever good thing that should happen, I hope it happens to her. So I agree. Let's, uh, We'll take a little break here, and on the other side of the break, we're going to talk about some more tears that may be coming, but it's not because of the story, but because of coding changes. Yeah, coding changes, yeah, because that's what everybody wants to talk about. Tom, you still getting to use that Echo Core digital stethoscope, man? Every day, and every day I listen through it. I'm so glad I'm listening to what I am sure is the best way to hear my patient's breath and heart sounds. Yeah, absolutely, man. I truly, truly use it every single day. And I love that 40 time amplification. I love the noise cancellation. So I can't hear anything else going on around me. I can just focus on the breath sounds and the heart sounds and the bowel sounds of the patient that I'm listening to. Ben, I would be using an echo stethoscope, even if they weren't a sponsor of our show. It does Bluetooth to your phone. They do have an app that now is detecting AFib. And, you know, my daughter had a little run of SVT or had some concerns of SVT. I was able to actually capture a recording with my Echo device on my phone so that we had that in, in the event that we needed it. So, I mean, and again, wonderful piece of equipment. Go check them out. EchoHealth.com. E-K-O-Health.com. Use code JSP. Gives you $50 off your order. Let them know that we sent you. Ben, have you been having any aches or pains? Every day. <laughs> well, you know what, Ben? I haven't been having them as much. You know why? I've been using CBD stat products. And see, I need to get back into that because my knees have been bothering me. I'm sure it's the cold weather and just being old and flu season and all that other stuff. So yeah, it, it, when I have used them in the past, it's always worked great. I did use some last night because my knees were just really bugging me. I use that roll on. Ben, CBD stat products are some of the strongest on the market. They're made by healthcare professionals with healthcare professionals mind. They are THC free. They are legal in all 50 states. And honestly, Ben, they are some of the best pain relieving products I've ever used. And they love their healthcare people. So if you're in healthcare, they want to give you a permanent 40% discount. I'm going to repeat that for you. It's a permanent 40% discount. Go to cbdstat.care slash healthcare. Fill out that form. They can give you that 40% off. Now, they know that some of our listeners, you're not in healthcare. They still want to help you out because you're listening to Tom and I right now. So if you go to their website, you put everything in your cart. Tom, what code can they use? JSP20. That's right. JSP20. It's going to give you 20% off your order just because you're listening to Tom and I right now. Go check them out cbdstat.care All right, Tom, so let's get into some of the coding changes for 2023. And I'm going to be completely honest on a few things here. First off, neither Tom nor I are coders. And so... <laughs> Good thing you pointed that out. I mean, I, and just in case they weren't aware, we are taking some of the information that we have been able to come up with and we're going to compile it and try to present that information to you. 
with the caveat being that if there are questions or concerns, please talk to whoever does your coding for you because they're going to be much more well-versed on this than Tom and I are. The point of this is to try and help you and give you some real good talking points or basic things to understand while you're trying to formulate, you know, your coding at the end of your visit. But yeah, as Ben said, certainly if there is a question or a concern, you need to take it up with the professional coder and not just be like, well, Ben said it should be a two, one, three. Well, maybe you actually need to talk to somebody about that one. So Understanding that is very important, but we are going to try and give you some really good advice and some great insights for in-hospital E&M codes, and we'll get you to learn something and enjoy it and use it when you're out there in the world taking care of patients. Yeah, and the other thing I want to say is that I don't work inpatient. I'm strictly outpatient. I don't even get the opportunity anymore to work ER as far as a provider. So I truly didn't know that these changes were coming because it doesn't affect my bubble as far as outpatient. I happened to see something in an ER group that I'm in on Facebook talking about coding changes for 2023. And I'm like, huh, that's kind of weird because our hospital hasn't talked to us about anything. <laughs> you know, so I started researching and I'm going, oh, well, now I know why. Yeah. And so my bubble. Exactly. And so when Ben said, hey, we need to do this show on coding changes, I'm like, Ben, no offense, we already did a show on coding changes. And he said, Correct. But there's more. And so here we are. So let's jump into this. So the biggest change is going to be for hospital and nursing home settings, and they have moved to the same coding selection criteria as in the outpatient world. If you'll remember, we did an episode a couple of years ago talking about the changes in the outpatient world as far as 99213s versus 214s. And so we have been using that system since 2021. They're now moving that into the inpatient system. And for those of you in inpatient that are getting ready to throw a fit, let me be clear. You're actually probably going to enjoy these. <laughs> okay. In the outpatient setting, the changes were actually the way they probably should have been changed. And it's worked out for the better, at least in my experience. So hopefully while it's going to be a headache to have to deal with changes, Understand that once you get these changes down, it's actually going to improve your practice probably. I, I agree wholeheartedly. So the criteria they're going to start using in order to select a code is either going to be total time spent caring for the patient or your medical decision making. It's either or. So, you know, it used to be, particularly in the outpatient setting, you know, you had to hit so many things in the HPI, so many things in the physical exam. They did away with all that and they said, hey, either – you're charting by time or you're coding by time, how much time you spend taking care of that patient or you're coding by your medical decision-making. So the medical decision-making table used for the office E&M codes will now be used for hospital and inpatient and nursing home services with a couple of changes. Like, I mean, they added things like, you know, acute un uncomplicated illness requiring hospital inpatient or observation level of care. And of course, like things like escalation of hospital level of care. So like if they're on the floor and they start deteriorating, we bump them up to the ICU. That's obviously an escalation of hospital level of care. Ultimately, the idea is this is supposed to be a simpler way to code. And it truly, once you get into it and get it figured out, it really, really is. You know, you need documentation to support your coding, but it's going to be, it's going to be just so much simpler. <laughs> yes, very, very much. With that being said, you still need to have your medically appropriate HPI and history and physical and your physical exam, but they're not figured into the coding at all. Let's be clear for just a second. And this is something we do on JSP. I just want to point out 
while this is going to streamline some of your, you know, charting and everything, as we've said on JSP so many times, you have got to protect yourself. So even though the medical decision making or time has become the critical components of your coding, that doesn't mean that you should start skimping on your HPI and your physical exams, because ultimately, while you will get to your charts faster and you will get more work done, you are still legally responsible for documentation of everything you do. So be aware of the pitfall of like, oh, well, I can get through things so much faster now. Well, yes, but you also need to pay attention because if something bad happens, you still have to answer for it. Yeah. So, I mean, at least in the outpatient setting, the way that I have changed the way that I – because I was thinking about this when I was coming up with this information and notes and stuff. I have changed the way that I chart. Yes, me too. And it's – you know, like for my typical HPI, let's say you know, I see a patient for diabetes. Okay, so you know we're in for diabetes. You know, here's what their normal blood sugars have been running. They reported, you know, patient is – I usually chart something like they're, you know, they're agreeable to routine lab work. I reviewed – recent lab work that they had done and I'll even put in things like let's say like I have a patient who has a rash and I'll say you know discussion of this could be shingles this could be this could because I'm explaining ultimately where my medical decision making is coming from so I've also changed my charting but mine's been a twofold process because it's not only been the changes in EM code it's also a hospital wide change in EMR so we have recently switched from one charting system to a much bigger or more widely known one that I'm not going to name for a bunch of reasons but mostly because I don't know if I can but otherwise everybody knows it everybody's seen it everyone's heard of this you know and it is a great system but one of the reasons I don't chart specifically like that in every way is because there are macro functions that when we bring up the rest of our chart, after I fill out a few things, it actually puts all the things I looked at in the chart. So I don't specifically put that in my HPI. That's actually part of my charting system now is like I can put in like, like you said, a rash. I can put nonspecific skin eruption and a couple other things. And then I can put like, I talked about this and this, and that's how I chart now. So I don't specifically put shingles versus, I just put, you know, description of rash, where it's at, what we're thinking. And then if this doesn't work, what we want to do next. And that's how I've done it. And I've had no problems with any of my coding. The other word that I use a lot in my charting is the word because. I use because, approximate a lot. <laughs> just because it gives me that understanding of what I'm thinking. You know, because the patient presented with chest pains to yes. the clinic, I obtained an EKG, which showed this, and I had blood work ordered or I sent them to the ER. But again, it's that explanation of what I'm doing and why not only are you covering your own ass, you're taking care of your patient, but you're also justifying the code that you are ultimately going to be responsible for as well fair mine first of all i document my hbis and treatment plans like like bullet point style so i don't do like the whole story i do patient showed up with chest pain patient states chest pain has been present for three days patient denies shortness of breath ekg shows normal sinus rhythm he was told do this and this if that doesn't improve symptoms report to er or contact pcp you know but i also put my follow-up in there and i think while I don't explicitly say I'm looking at this or this, it's pretty obvious in the treatment part of this section. It's like, well, I said, if that doesn't work, come to me and we'll do plan B 
And that's what it is. And so I am ostensibly doing the same thing, but with different wording. So I use the word if instead of because. So it's the same principle, though. If this doesn't work, patient will return and we will try diclofenac instead of meloxicam, you know, whatever. But the point is, we're saying the same things in different ways, which actually shows a good symptom of the new ENM coding, which is it's flexible. It now truly reflects what Ben and I are saying versus, oh, I only documented six body systems in the review of systems instead of eight. Well, now I can't charge something like what the hell was that thought process? I understand what the thought process was. That was a very poor way of implementing it. So there are four levels of medical decision making. It's going to be straightforward, low, moderate and high. And these are defined by three elements. You have either the number and complexity of the problems that are being addressed. You have the amount and or complexity of the data to be reviewed and analyzed. And then lastly, you have the risk of complications and or morbidity or mortality of the patient. I will say, and we will include a link in the show notes, AAFP has a great universal coding template for both time and medical decision making. That's one thing that we talked about for the outpatient coding section, and I have not been as routine about it as I used to be, and that is at the end of my treatment section, I need to get back in the habit of charting, you know, we did this and this, I spent approximately 25 minutes with my patient. And so there, all the documentation's in there. So I have all available information at any time. So if somebody says, oh, well, you could have coded this as a 214 instead of 213 because you put, you saw him for 30 minutes. Oh, then I can make that change. So I think that's a very important thing in both outpatient and inpatient is just get in the habit of however long you spend with the patient, document it. It doesn't hurt anything. And as a matter of fact, it's an accurate reflection of what you're doing anyways. So just do it. So on the medical decision-making aspect, breaking each one of those down briefly. So the number and complexity of problems that are being addressed. That's pretty straightforward. And we're talking about a hospital. Say the patient has pneumonia. Okay. Now that could have some complexity to it. But maybe it's just one problem. Unless you add in, oh, they have COPD. Which now means, okay, now that pneumonia is a hell of a lot more complex. Oh, and they're diabetic. And you've increased the complexity of their problems. Same thing with the app. You had diabetes. Now, okay, we well, can't use steroids. Or, I mean, you can use steroids, but then the sugar's going to go crazy. So yeah, that's how that you're looking at as far as that number and complexity of the problems. The amount of complexity of the data to be reviewed and analyzed. Now, I, again, outpatient, not inpatient. I know inpatient, at least from the times that I've been in the hospital or my children have been in the hospital, the shit ton of st- tests that are ran because they have to be. So that's that amount or complexity of that data. So we're talking lab results, CAT scans, things of that nature, you know, anything that is consults. Yeah. All the stuff that goes totality of that patient care. And then lastly is those risk of complications or morbidity or mortality of the patient. So to go back to that pneumonia patient. Okay. So there is some risk, you know, pneumonia can be fatal. Now, when you add in that COPD, we have just increased the risk for complications or mortality of this patient significantly, which is bumping your medical decision-making up. Never mind the fact you caught the patient smoking out of her trach when you went in the room to assess her. So, yeah, now you got to bump that up to a freaking five. So there you go. I mean, that's going to happen sometime. So that's a brief explanation of the medical decision-making elements. Again, there's a great universal coding template link in the show notes for that if you want to look at that. 
But let's jump over into billing by time. This one has truly been very nice on the outpatient side. I will say for inpatient, it's a little bit different. So in the office, for an established patient, it's 10 to 19 minutes, 20 to 29 minutes, 30 to 39 minutes, and 40 to 54 minutes. And that's based on your you know, two on two versus two and three, two and four. On the hospital side, they don't have that breakdown like that. It's, say, 40 minutes or more, 55 minutes or more, 75 minutes or more for that initial admission. So that's where that is getting into it. But here's the caveat that changed a lot of the way that we are able to bill by time. In the past, it used to be just face-to-face time with your patient prior to 2021 in the outpatient setting. Now, for us and for you guys in 2023 on the inpatient side, everything that you do on that date of service for that patient counts toward that time. Preparing to see the patient, obtaining and reviewing separate histories, your medical exam, your counseling, your ordering medications, tests, procedures, your referring, your documenting. You get time for documenting. Independently interpreting those results and communicating those to your patient. Care coordination. All of that, as long as it's on that same date of service, can count toward that time. And again, that's been, I would say, practice changing in some aspects on the outpatient side, because I may have a patient who I have to do extensive education with, say they're new diabetic. And so we're going over, you know, you need to watch your feet. You need to make sure you don't have any blisters. Here's things you should wear shoes. Yeah. Yeah. Tons of that, that yes, you could charge that face to face time in the past, but now you get time for that documentation. You get time for, Oh, you know what? Well, I was admitted to a hospital two hours away and they're the ones who told me that I was diabetic. So you get those records, you review those records. That's all counting toward that time in seeing that patient that same day of service. So like Tom said, it's not a bad plan to document the time that you're spending in care of that patient. It's never going to be a bad thing. No. And like I said, it's something you're already doing. It's probably documented somewhere in the EHR anyways. Like, you know, they went in the room at this time. They left the room at this time. You know, every service has like a little different button system. But overall, it's a good practice to get into. And honestly, it's very helpful because if you have complicated medical decision making, it's not going to affect you if you were only in there a short period of time. And in the inpatient side, you are likely to spend, especially with new patients, a large amount of time going through the ER note, look at reviewing all the lab work, setting up a plan of care. This is actually extremely beneficial for you, this new coding system. All right. Well, basically, with all that being said, the point is make sure you're documenting to cover your butt and to justify those codes. So still do your great documentation. It's just going to make coding on the outside of it easier. Jumping into ER briefly. ER coding is changing slightly, but it is not based on time. It is only based on medical decision making. Specifically, they say time is not a descriptive component for ER E&M services. This is because the services are typically provided on a variable intensity basis, often involving multiple encounters with several patients over an extended period of time, which makes sense. There are times that patients are in the ER, say a chest pain, and you have other stuff going on, that patient may be there several hours, and you may even get serial troponins on them. 
And so you can't charge my time because everything would be a maximum amount charge. Not only that, having worked in the ER, that's kind of an unfair way to look at it because that physician might only be in the room for 30 seconds, you know, the first time. And then they got to come back and maybe the course of treatment, like you said, it's six hours. That's not really fair to, you know, whoever's trying to determine the level, because if you just go based off time, well, then it looks like, you know, uh, every patient's a 215 at that point. ER is a different animal and it had to be treated that way. But again, I think this is a fair set of rules that they put in place. There's also no classification in the ER for new versus established patient because you yeah. <laughs> have a new versus established in the ER. So yeah. some of the brief change, 99281, that's basically going to be evaluation of the patient that may not even require the presence of a provider. A 282, your straightforward medical decision-making, 283, low-level, 284, moderate-level, 285, high-level, and then critical care, which are the 291 and 292 are aside from that and have their own separate guidelines. So, again, with the ER, make sure that you're using that medical decision-making to document and justify why you're thinking the way that you are in your medical decision-making. So, just a few other things that I found when I was doing some research through different articles. CMS has come out with some rules that they're going to change telehealth services in the future. Of course. They, well, I think article I've seen, they had a like 300% fold increase in telehealth services since the pandemic. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it makes sense. But CMS has said that they are discontinuing the audio-only services in the future. So basically, if you talked to a patient on the phone because they didn't have the ability to, they didn't have a smartphone, they couldn't do the telehealth video conferencing service, you could initially charge for that as an audio-only visit. However, CMS has said it's not a face-to-face visit, therefore it doesn't. it's not going to count as a visit in the future. I believe what I was reading, that's going to be like the end of 2023, that they will probably do away with that. So in the outpatient setting, I know we're talking about inpatient, but in the outpatient setting, while as a practitioner, I hate audio-only type visits because I'm like, how am I legitimately supposed to assess my patient if they're here for, if they have a complaint of like foot pain, like what am I going to do? However, the flip side though is perhaps I could provide some level of care or set up testing for a patient or something. If I could have that visit, perhaps they, like you said, they aren't able to operate a smartphone. Perhaps they don't have enough resources to have a smartphone. I am okay with telling patients they have to come into the office for certain complaints I fear losing the ability to help people that may not have like, what if we get a foot of snow and they're like, Hey, I can't leave the house. I mean, I look, we can come up with a thousand what if scenarios, but what I am saying is while I do not like that tool, it was a helpful tool in a rural and socioeconomically depressed area. And to take away any ability to care for the patients that need it most sucks. But I understand it. It makes sense at the and I hate those types of visits as a practitioner. But it allowed me for patients perhaps that did not need as much intensity. If I'm following up with you to see if your anxiety or ADHD medication is still doing well for you because I'm forced to, you know, certain states they're like, "Hey, if you're going to give out controlled substances, you have to meet with your patient so many times." Okay, well, we could have made that a very easy and efficient visit, 
until you did this. So that's what I'm saying is while I certainly would not like it in the majority of cases, there were cases where it would have been very easy or helpful to continue to have that tool. That's my my only point. My thought process on it is, so this is a CMS guideline. So this is for Medicare patients. Medicare are going to be your elderly patients that may not have smartphone technology. Or even if they don't know how to use it. And also these are the, like you said, it's rural health. So in some places they may not have internet capabilities to be able to do a video conference call, but they have a, they have a landline phone. Yeah. And and like I said, I certainly see both sides. I just think in a time when we're just trying to do as much good for as many people as possible, taking away one of the tools that provided that opportunity may not be the best idea, but agree. there are certainly downfalls to it. So it's one of those, I say to people, I get it. It sucks, but deal with it. We got to move forward. So another change that CMS is making for Medicare patients. They're adding chronic pain management and treatment bundles for Medicare patients. These are new codes that are G3002 and G3003. The first one is basically chronic pain management and treatment, which is a monthly bundle which is basically the first 30 minutes of care for chronic pain patients. The second one is each additional 15 minutes during that month. The thing that I read about this and the reason that we're talking about it is they are also adding this ability to nurse practitioners and PAs to be able to use these codes as well. Now, I don't know any more about it other than that at this point, but I do think that this is a step toward, you know, there was – the thing that came out with the CDC kind of walking back some of their... Yeah, about blaming us for pain medication. So I think that this is a at least a step in the right direction to be able to... Because again, Medicare patients are your elderly patients, and you may have some that are in chronic pain that are non-surgical. And there's not much that you can do. At least this gives you those some of those tools that CMS is looking at in order to be able to do that. And last but not least, Tom... We can't, you know, we can't do a coding episode without talking about our views and. Oh God, why couldn't we? Well, because that would be no fun. <laughs> yeah, because RVUs are what I like to talk about. So CMS has announced that in 2023, it is reducing its conversion factor in RVUs to 33.06, which is about 4.5 percent lower than 2022. Three percent of that reduction is the conversion factor Congress added in 2022. That is expiring because it's going to be the end of the year. The other 1.5% of that is budget neutrality adjustments. So they're lowering some of the RVU aspects that we get with funding. And for those of you who are on WRVU bonuses, may see a slight decrease in some of that. Yes, because the government's method in order to save money is not do better with their budgeting. It's to take away money from you for doing your job. That seems like to be a lot of sense. And I looked and I did not see anything that showed me what a, like an outpatient 99213, what the new RVU factor would be for 2023. I looked multiple places and could not find that. If someone out there finds it, let me know and I'll gladly report that on the next episode. But yeah, for every 2213, now we get a shiny nickel. Not quite that bad, I don't think, but probably not, but it's going to feel that way at first. But Tom, that's going to wrap up our episode on the coding changes for 2023. Like I said, 
initially it looks like a lot, especially on the inpatient side, but once you actually get into it and see how some of the, that changes, at least it did on the outpatient side, it did really make things run a whole lot smoother on the charting aspects. Yeah, I can't tell you enough how much I think you are going to enjoy this initial headache later. Like, it's going to suck at first while you're trying to figure it out, but relatively fast, you're going to figure it out and you're going to be happy with the changes, I think. And your coders will be happy too. <laughs> yes, very much. But on that note, we're still deep in flu season. Wash your hands. Wear your mask if you need to. Spend some quiet time with your friends and family over the holiday season. Take care of yourselves and each other. Hey, everybody. Stay safe out there. Practice swearing just to pass the time. Lately I see why I am alone. I caught some road rage and I thought of you. And all the many times you say I should have known. Took a press so I could find my cheek.